Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. Hi, Tom. We should say welcome back to you, Jay. We missed you last week. Yeah, I had to bail on you. So I know you, uh, you, you soldiered on and did a great job solo, Tom. So that was, uh, I appreciate you bailing me out. Yeah, no problem. It was uh, my first solo cast since we started about a year ago. But I had a good guest, so that always helps. And I know today we have a good guest, so... Yeah, we do. I'm very excited uh, to have this conversation today with David C. Baker. And David is an author, speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books, advised 900-plus firms, and keynoted conferences in 30-plus countries. His work has been discussed in dozens of international publications. The New York Times has referred to him as the expert's expert, and he co-hosts the most listened-to podcast in the creative services field called Two Bobs, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And I, uh, I'm excited to talk to David because I, I feel like I know him a bit because I'm an avid listener to his podcast and have read um, multiple books that he's written, including his most recent one, which we'll be talking quite a bit about. So David, uh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I was glad that you asked and I didn't have to think at all about saying yes. So thank you for having me. It's, it's going to be a fun discussion. Uh, I'm not going to tell any lawyer jokes. I don't know any good ones <laughs> anyway. Uh, of those 900 firms I've worked with, maybe 10 or 12 have focused on the legal profession as well. So it makes it kind of interesting to see the overlap here. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it might seem like uh, some listeners who might have heard that introduction uh, maybe are thinking about why you know, we're having a, uh, an expert who focuses on the creative services field on. Um, but David, in my experience, I, I think all of us who are in um, industries can, can kind of get caught up in the echo chambers of our industries, right? Where we're listening to the same people, um, everyone's speaking sort of the same language. And at least from my perspective, it's helpful to uh, sometimes look to adjacent industries and experts for new insights. Uh, do, you, do you do that as well? I mean, are you, do you look outside of creative services for inspiration and, and insight? I do. Absolutely, I do. In fact, so my consulting practice is more towards creative marketing, digital firms, but my book audience is broader. And so the last book was written, directed very specifically at expert professional service firms, including attorneys. And I use a lot of examples in there. And I, I find that very inspiring to think about those differences. And even in my own research, when I'm looking for some ratio, I will always consult with the other professional service branches and say, all right, this is what they think, what, what would apply to us. The other thing too, this is more, I guess, anecdotal, but early in my career, there were certain authors that I just loved reading. I just couldn't get enough of their stuff. And um, one of those wrote about, wrote, wrote for attorneys and, and he was, um, you know, like strategy and the fat smoker, the, those kinds of books. And, and I just learned so much, even though the particular branch he was addressing was a little bit different. I've, I've found that it really expands my thinking. It, I have to have not only a, 
a broad perspective, but also even broader in my personal life. Otherwise, I'll kind of get lost in this deep expertise and I'll start saying things that just don't make sense to people. So yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah, great. Well, I want to I want to start uh, today by talking uh, about your most recent book called The Business of Expertise. And as I mentioned, that that is one of the books I've read. And um, in fact, it's sitting on my desk right now, uh, and I refer to it frequently. And you know, more broadly, with your work, I, I do draw a lot of um, uh, insight uh, that's applicable, I think, to to lawyers and law firms, even though oftentimes you're contextualizing it for creative services. So I want to talk about one of the topics that you touch on quite a bit, and it, which is positioning. And with lawyers in particular, and Tom and I talk a lot about this on our podcast and write about it quite a bit, but lawyers struggle with the issue of positioning. Um, if you go to many lawyers' uh, bio pages on their websites, they might have you know 10 or 15 different practice areas listed suggesting that they have expertise in all of them. Um, they oftentimes have no constraints on the number of industries they suggest they can um, provide services to. So positioning, it, it can be a challenge. So I wanna start by reading a, a short excerpt from your book about this issue and then ask you a follow-up question. So the, expert, uh, the excerpt is, your narrow positioning is an exercise in irrelevance. The more irrelevant you become to non-ideal prospects by turning your positioning away from them, the more relevant you become to your chosen target clients, but that requires courage and discipline. So David, I'd like to ask you, what is positioning from your perspective? And then how can narrow positioning help lawyers gain more power and control in the client relationship, which is an issue that you write about in the business of expertise? Yeah, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. So it makes sense to me that this would be confusing and maybe even anti-intellectual in some sense. This is particularly true in the North American market where we have this genetic predisposition to loving opportunity, even to the point where we feel somewhat guilty, maybe even sinful in turning down opportunity. And positioning at its core is really about addressing a smaller opportunity batch. And so it can feel wrong. We can find ourselves asking, like, why in the world would I all of a sudden say that I don't want to work for these people? What would be the advantage in that? And in some ways, it doesn't really matter. So you could be, you could have a small legal practice in a town and you might feel like, well, this marketplace requires me to be able to competently address any of these issues and, and that's true. It, it makes sense. But if you're in a, say, a larger town with a larger addressable market, and if you want to make a lot more money and you want to give Google something to work with, as, as we say, then you'll have to specialize. The ones who get paid the most money and who make the biggest splash are the ones who are deeply relevant to a much smaller audience. And this is really more of a modern phenomenon. By modern, I mean the last 25 years or so. Before that, you, you, you always had to address your, your local market. Your, the boundaries were geographic. And when Google came along, now this is a little bit complicated by the fact that you have to be recognized by different states to practice and so on, but the principle still holds. When Google came along, all of a sudden it, it did two things, one good and one bad. It opened up your marketplace 
so that you could um, effectively serve clients that you couldn't meet with face-to-face, but it also meant that you no longer had a protected marketplace. So everything changed 25, 26 years ago in the late 90s, and now clients have your clients have come to expect very specific things and this is true in all of their personal lives they the other day i was um, needing to rebuild a road we we bought a farm the road is a third of a mile long it was a mess it wasn't even passable outside of four-wheel drive vehicles and i'm thinking okay i can do this myself and i'm lying at night thinking okay, how am i going to justify all this equipment i purchased and I realized, oh, I had the answer. All I needed to do was go to YouTube and in seconds for free, I can find exactly what I need to do. That's the kind of expectation that, that experts have nowadays. And so if you are going to meet those expectations, it's simply impossible to be that smart about that many things. And clients, when it comes right down to their essential needs, they don't want to pay a lot of money to a generalist. They want to pay a lot of money and they want to listen more carefully to somebody who has, who has focused on one. They're comfortable in their lives assembling this batch of experts and calling on individual ones rather than one village elder like centuries ago. That makes yeah. sense? Yeah, that does, uh, David. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's true. And, and it, frankly, specialization like that is, is, is necessary to meet market demand these days in legal services. And I think the same is true in the creative services field, obviously, but clients are no longer, you know, in, in the creative services field, you used to have agencies of record, and now you have a collection of specialists, all who, you know, for many clients, all who do one thing really well. And the same is true, um, maybe to a lesser extent, but the trend is certainly moving in this direction where you have, you know, the institutional law firm of record, so to speak. Um, Now clients are disaggregating um, particular projects and engagements into a bundle of services providers. Some of them not law firms at all are lawyers. Alternative legal service providers are really starting to gain a, a tremendous amount of market share. And clients themselves through things like legal spend analytics and just other more sophisticated buying tools are bringing in a collection of specialists to handle matters, no matter where they're located. So I think that, you know, that trend is definitely rooted um, in, in the legal space as well. So um, Tom, I'll throw it over to you now. Yeah. Well, there was, I was just going to attest to two things you said, David. One is um, Jay does refer to your book often. In fact, he used it as a cudgel against me. It's annoying, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah very it, annoying. It was an internal dialogue about our own positioning, so I guess it was fair play. But it really did actually settle an internal dispute of my own that I was grappling with um, around this whole idea of narrowing. Because I think you're right. It's difficult to get your head around initially. And even when you come around to it, like Jay and I have, because we preach it constantly, the, it can fall apart in the execution, Right. And so I had a conversation with a client just last, was it like, yeah, it was late last week about the, uh, her struggle with narrowing. And we eventually got her off of the mindset that it had to be a strictly vertical narrowing. And maybe there's a way to horizontally narrow. And I think what we're doing as an agency is kind of both, but I think it could be one, it could be the other, or it could be both. And I'm interested on your take. First of all, you could probably explain the difference far better than I could to my client. So start there and then give us your take on how that can be applied to your attempts, you know, to narrowly position. 
Sure. And the fact that it that a positioning decision doesn't have to be vertical is a great relief to a lot of professionals, a lot of experts for one particular reason. So vertical expertise would be defined by the particular vertical that you address. That would be defined by an SIC code or more modern terminology would be an NAICS code. And that would be, if we're talking about broad targets, it would be something like financial services or tech or healthcare. Those classically have been the three that have always been the biggest. And then there'd be lots of smaller verticals. So you could, you could position your practice around that, and that would be a vertical expertise. There are a lot of advantages and some disadvantages to that. The biggest disadvantage that often experts who are at that at that boundary consider is that they feel like it might be boring. They just don't want to spend the rest of their life addressing that particular vertical market. And so they look for alternatives. And one of those alternatives is a horizontal positioning, which is defined differently. There are really two different ways it could be defined. One is a service offering. So the specific thing you do for all kinds of verticals across all those verticals, or it could be a particular demographic that you might do. And in the legal profession, there's no mystery about um, how viable a horizontal positioning is. So you could do, for instance, estate planning, and your clients would come from all different demographic segments, different ages, different races, different parts of the country. You could do uh, divorce work, for instance, that would be a horizontal positioning. And the, the biggest advantage of horizontal positioning is, well, there's a bunch of them. One of them is that you, you seldom have a conflict of interest with a client. You, at least they're, they're not as prevalent. You um, are a little bit more immune to an economic downturn. Say if, if, if the economy hits the financial services sector really hard, that doesn't necessarily hurt you because using our earlier example, divorces are still going to happen regardless of what happened. It may even be more likely to happen, right? Um, you, yeah. it, the, the challenge is sometimes that it's a little bit harder to actually address your prospects if it's a horizontal positioning. So when I am at the stage where somebody is open to the idea of a tighter positioning, then the first thing we do is we say, all right, let's look at the horizontal and vertical. Let's look at the pros and cons of each one. And then let's talk about the options. And here, uh, in, inevitably, a lot more options surface than they think will surface. We're not inventing something out of nothing. It, the, the options are there. We're, we're pulling an option out that already exists. It's something that you're already good at. And we're just saying, moving forward, you're not necessarily going to say no to work that doesn't fit your positioning, but your outlook, your, your outbound efforts are going to be focused very tightly on this particular segment. And then over time, you'll stop accepting anything that doesn't fit it. And all of a sudden, you enter this so if, if you're not at this point yet and you're just thinking about the idea of, of, of tightening your positioning, picture yourself in a room and there are all these doors and they lead to different places and you're not sure what's exactly behind the door, but 
you're being asked to choose one of those doors. And it seems really limiting at the time because you're walking away from all those other opportunities behind the other closed doors that you're not choosing. But what happens is you enter that room, you make that courageous choice, and all of a sudden you see something you had no idea was there before. And, and there are lots of other doors that open out from the room that you're entering. And you never have a problem with running out of opportunity. That's a little bit of an overstatement. Every once in a while, somebody makes a bad choice, but it's so rare, you almost don't even have, have to register it. So while it can be, while it can feel like it's limiting, in reality, it's really not. There are so many great options and so many things to talk about. And it's a fun process as long as you get somebody to the point where they're open to thinking about a slightly tighter positioning. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll let Jay, first of all, I love the analogy. Jay knows that I love analogies, but that's, it's really a, a good conceptual framing of when you're saying yes to one thing, or let me reverse that. When you're saying no to a lot of things, you are saying yes to one particular thing. And that, and that can really be empowering. Um, I'll let Jay provide you with another analogy in your book, because this is the specific passage that he took a picture of, emailed it to me and said, ha, <laughs> listen to this. And it really was enlightening. And it was all about the, Jay, go ahead. Yeah. Is this the, uh, the drop and give me 20? It is passage okay great well and and just to follow up and to emphasize i think one of one of david's points before i uh, I'll, I'll keep the suspense going on that tom for a moment but um, yeah just just for a lawyer who i think because david to your point it, it, it can be scary it can be um difficult for lawyers to position themselves narrowly but um just you have this i've heard you use this um sort of catchy shorthand to uh to put people at ease which is that when you talk about positioning, it's not it's it's more what you pursue than what you do, right? Where there is this transition where you you're you're going to take work outside of your narrow positioning, perhaps at the start, but your goal should be to work towards not accepting that work. But there's this there's this counterbalance between what, how you market and sell yourself and, and the work you do. So you're not going to be sitting there twiddling your thumbs saying saying no to all revenue coming in the door. You're just sort of building up to this expertise that's ultimately going to be more. Um, profitable down the road. So, right, um, right, yeah, and and that's a it's a transition that that it gives you some relief, right? Because it's not going to help yep. it happen overnight. And and then the other transition that you'll make is it's really not so much motivated by opportunity; it's more motivated by ethics. Because as you start to concentrate on something, you get so much better at it quickly. Your rate of learning just doubles or triples. And then you say, ah, oh, this isn't just about opportunity. This is about delivering value to my clients. And so when an opportunity comes in here that in the past I might have said, yeah, I can help you with that. You start to think, you know what? That's not really my sweet spot. This would, in, it's in the client's best interest for me to introduce them to Linda over here who's amazing at this. That's her sweet spot. And I'll just keep focusing where... I just can can totally conquer anything because I've I've seen it so much. So yeah, it's interesting to think about those different transitions and why they happen. Yeah. Okay. So we've kind of laid the foundation, I think, and hopefully people are, are more more bought into the idea of narrow positioning than they might have been when they started listening to this episode. But maybe we can give them at least one tool to think about. Well, how do I actually go about evaluating the different um, positioning? Uh, 
options or opportunities that I have. Um, we often talk to the clients about you know, finding some intersection or commonality between like, what are you interested in or passionate about? What do you have expertise in and where are the market opportunities? Um, you have a more interesting way to, uh, or interesting tool um, that you discuss in your book, um, which is one of my favorites, which is what you call drop and give me 20 um, as, a, as sort of a mental exercise to think about positioning. Can you describe what that is, David? Yeah, and I, I don't even remember where I got the image in my mind, but it, it, the idea is that uh, on a military base, a sergeant, a mean sergeant could at any point say, hey, drop and give me 20 push-ups. And, and there was no pausing, no questioning. It, it just, they immediately did it. And that's how I think about expertise. If you, so we could use you folks and, and me as an example. So I am uh, intelligent enough. We could argue about how intelligent, <laughs> let's not do that. I'm intelligent enough and I know a fair bit about marketing because I've worked with so many marketing firms. Okay. But I don't, I don't have the same declared expertise that you folks have. So we could be on a plane sitting next to each other and, and we're 20 minutes from landing. We strike up a conversation and it's interesting to me that you're in the marketing field and, and you seem intelligent. Would I be able to learn a bunch of things from you that I wouldn't already know? And if your positioning is good and if you know what you're doing, then I should have easily, I should have 20 aha moments where I didn't even realize that like marketing for the legal profession. That's interesting. I kind of think I could probably do that. But then as you talk more, I realize, Oh my goodness, I'm in way over my head. Like I don't, I don't even understand how that works. And you're just dropping these insight bombs on me, kind of like giving me 20 push-ups. That's, that's the idea behind this. So it becomes an, an initial test of, of your expertise. And it's also a way that I can push my clients. So if they have landed on a typical positioning and we're, we're proof testing it at this point, then I'll say to them, all right, come back to me. The next time we talk, I want you to give me 20 topic ideas, just the, just the headline. You don't have to write them. And I'll give you some feedback on how persuasive I think those will be. And invariably, 15 of the 20 are just ho-hum, the kind of things you see on LinkedIn that don't move me. They're not interesting. I don't learn anything. They're all expected. But five of those have insights that make me shake my head and say, oh, I'm smart enough and I know a fair bit about marketing, but I didn't realize that. That's really interesting. So that's, that's part of the exercise. And, and what it does too is it gets people excited about seeing that they actually do have some unique insights that they can build a lead generation plan around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of lead generation, and I'll, I'll throw it over to Tom for this, but um, that's, I mean, you know, as, as we know, and, and certainly in, in the fields in which we operate, um, the idea of, of marketing one's expertise often involves what's commonly referred to as thought leadership marketing. So um, kind of want to transition to that, think about, well, how do we, how do we take our positioning and make it um, more visible for other people to recognize? So Tom, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, another passage. Uh, so you should recognize these words, David, as your own. But we thought that this was uh, interesting to us as practitioners of thought leadership content in, uh, in PR services uh, specifically. But you write, if you don't know what to say, you aren't an expert. And if you don't know how to say it, you haven't practiced enough. If you find too many audiences when directing your writing, 
you haven't focused enough. So we know that you espouse and you actually practice thought leadership publishing yourself, uh, podcast writing. What would you say to a lawyer who reflexively pushes back and says that he or she doesn't have the time or doesn't see the value in, in doing this uh, as a lead generation mechanism? Right. Yeah. And my answer to that's going to be a little bit unique given the market that you address because there's no attorney in the world who's passed, who's gone, who's gotten a JD and then passed the bar who isn't good at writing. There just is no such thing as an inarticulate attorney nowadays. So we can't, we can't throw that in each other's faces and say, it's just not a part of the profession because it really is. There's, there's a, there's a inescapable element of, of articulating concepts around the law. So I, you know, there, there's lots of little issues buried in here. If we just unpeel the onion, one of them, and I hear this quite frequently from professionals is that I'm really busy solving my clients issues and I don't have the time to, to develop this. And what I always say to that is that if, if you feel like you don't have the time to do this, then you're not charging enough. Your, your business models should be such that it frees up. And there's a real specific number here. It, it should free up four to 6% of your time to think about articulating your own thought leadership. And if, if, if that's just not happening for you, then you're not charging enough. Now, I want people to get so excited about this that they would never consider just spending four to 6% of their time developing thought leadership. In my own practice, I try to uh, book only about um, nine to 11 hours of consultation a week and charge enough for that, that I can spend the rest of the week getting smarter every time. And that getting smarter process, if I'm effective at it, will not only help my clients, but it will help me attract prospects as well. One of the things that really successful experts do is that they don't spend all their time solving a specific client problem. But when each of those opportunities come to them, they say, ah, oh, this is interesting. This is going to give me a chance to develop a thought framework that I will use. Yes, I will use it to solve this client's problem, but I'm going to develop this framework in a more permanent way and I'll be able to reuse it many times with clients. So you're getting smarter every week because you're not just working for a specific client. You're solving a larger problem that a specific client has. And you can turn those into thought leadership articles. Once you start down this path, you'll never run out of ideas to think about. I looked at this this morning because I was working with a client over the phone and um, my own idea funnel has 283 topic ideas. And then the next stage is, okay, these are probably worth developing. There's about 120 of those. Then the next stage would be the final one where, all right, I've already got the research. I've got an outline. I've got an illustration ready. I just need to write the thing. And there's 70 articles in there. And you just, the deeper you focus, the tighter your focus, the deeper you go, the more you think about writing and the more excited you get about it as well. Because this is what's, this is what's helping your practice. You, you want to be this beacon of light where 
a lot of people are constantly interested in what you think about something and that that instead of buying ads somewhere you can you can give google something to work with and it takes the place of that yeah that's that's really good david and and it kind of builds upon a concept we talk about which is the thought leadership flywheel which you know the that you build upon your expertise by writing uh, the writing gains more awareness and trust in the marketplace you get new work through that work you increase your expertise and that sort of the flywheel continues to turn over time. And it's a great way to not only market your services, but get smarter at a faster rate than, than your competitors. Um, and then I would just remind our listeners kind of, again, building upon a point David made about, um, you know, if you don't have the time, you're probably not charging enough. I would also add for many of our clients, I know you're probably not delegating enough either. Lawyers have a tendency to hold on to too much work sometimes because, you know, like, like everyone, sometimes you feel like you can do it better than anyone else and have a hard time delegating as a result, but you can find more time to write uh, or produce other content if you, if you are more thoughtful about delegation within your firm. And then I guess the last point would be, um, you know, remember the words of Charlie Munger, one of the few billionaire lawyers out there, although he no longer practices law, which is to um, not, you know, treat your external clients as the most important thing, but yourself and start selling yourself an hour of your time each day. So a few just ways to think about creating more time for this essential practice of thought leadership. Um, so David, uh, last, last question here, and it's again, um, uh, one that relates closely to this issue of, of expertise and, and maybe testing your expertise or, or positioning your expertise in the marketplace. But certainly creation of thought leadership, I think, is a, is a signal of expertise in the marketplace. What are some behaviors or characteristics that might be the opposite of that, that might um, exhibit uh, a lack of expertise to the marketplace? Mm, yeah, I like the way you flipped that question around. I, when I think about the legal profession in particular, I think one of the strongest anti-expert signals they send is a sense of desperation about needing clients. And then the way that shows up in their daily practice is they, this is something that Blair and I talk a lot about on our podcast, they over invest in the sale. Mm -hmm. So they spend too much time demonstrating the expertise that they'll bring to the table and if the client doesn't sign up um, for the retainer or, or whatever it is, then they start to feel bad about all the time they've spent and they make it even easier for the client to do it and relax some of their well thought out um, standards, like, you know, whatever the minimum amount is or how accessible the client's going to be, you know, whatever those standards are for the legal profession. So over investing in the sale, and that's, we could tie this together too, because instead of over-investing in specific sales and putting a lot of unpaid for thought into landing a particular client, instead what you can do is you can spend that effort to invest in broadcasting your thought leadership. And what that does is it gives your prospective clients who are gonna have to think really hard about whether or not to hire you because you're more expensive than other people. What it does is it gives them a sample of how you think and what it's going to be like to work with you. And all of those investments that you make, whether that's a video explaining it or whether it's some insight piece or whether it's a, an intake form or an orientation to your firm, whatever those things are, those cost money and they take time. 
but you can spread that investment across your entire prospect base rather than acting desperate and spending too much time with any individual prospect. That'd be the first thing, first place my mind would go to when we talk about acting not like an expert. That's great. And I think that's probably uh, a great place to wrap up today, David. Um, we've, you know, I think we've packed a ton in, you have packed a ton of insight into this episode. So really appreciate that. Um, before we wrap up, maybe if you could just take a moment, if people want to learn more about you, uh, your books, uh, your podcast, all of which I highly recommend, um, can you point them in the right direction? Sure. If they want to know more about the book that we've been referring to, they could go to expertise.com is expertise.is. And then if they are interested in how I model my own advisory practice, uh, they can go to davidcbaker.com. What they might really be interested in, because your clients wouldn't hire me, so this isn't a pitch, but what they might be interested in is looking at the frequently asked questions part of the site, where I'm very uh, blunt about what makes uh, a good client. I talk about references, talk about payment terms, and they might be interested to see how I can make that work. So, and thank you. Thanks to both of you for having me here. It's been a really interesting conversation. I, I admire the work that you're doing with your clients. You're a firm that has, um, you've implemented the kind of advice that you give around positioning and, and it's great to see that. So thank you for having me. Great. Thank you. And before we let you go, I don't think I heard a pitch for the podcast. What is oh, this podcast? Oh, yeah. Two Bobs. So the number two and then bobs.com. It's a play off of office space where the two Bobs were the consultants in that place. So you can see the obligatory red staple stapler on the, on the, <laughs> the front page of the website. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun podcast. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, and I know, you know, just through listening to the podcast and reading his work, um, your, your co-host Blair Enns is also very, um, very insightful in issues of sales and pricing and, and negotiation and, and all things that are of relevance to lawyers. So um, definitely give that podcast a listen. Well, um, thanks, David. Really appreciate your time today. And, and for everyone out there, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.